Good morning again. Um, I am, for those of you who don't know, Tim Drum, the pastor of student ministries here at EBC. I'm filling in for our, our teaching pastor, Patrick, Pastor Patrick. Uh, this morning, it's a blessing to be able to, to open God's word with you. Blessing to be able to serve with the students here uh, at EBC as a, a young man. I was thankful uh, for all of the people who served in youth ministry, so it's a blessing to be able to, to do that for other students here. Uh, since the Lord saved me, um, I, I read um, a book that just had me fascinated as a young man with various parts of creation. Um, I read a book called The Evolution of a Creationist. Ever, anyone ever read that book before? It's a good one. Um, in that book, uh, the author describes his journey from being a traditional scientist to being a creationist, uh, merely by studying the intricacies and designs in living creatures that simply could not have evolved. Uh, creatures like the bombardier beetle. You heard of this little guy? He's fascinating. Very cool. Uh, this beetle has two different glands uh, that contain chemicals that when they mix together create an explosion that shoots boiling hot liquid at its enemies. That's awesome. <laughs> Not only that, but some of them have the ability to control that spray and direct it up to a 270 degree angle. That's cool. Sorry if that grosses anybody out. But it is what it is. I find that quite fascinating. Um, or there's also the familiar woodpecker. Now, I didn't know this about re until reading about them, but there's quite a bit of activity that happens uh, when you hear that repeated noise of the woodpecker pecking on a tree. So I didn't know that in between each peck, the woodpecker pulls back its head, opens its eyes, re-aims and then pecks again. Closes its eyes and then pecks again. Pulls back, opens, aims, pecks again, every time. Opens and closes its eyes. It's amazing, you know why? Because it has to keep its eyes in its head because it's striking the tree with such force that if it didn't close its eyes, they would pop right out. That's incredible. Every single time. It's fascinating fascinating aspects of God's awesome creation. There's so many books that you can read about these different creatures. Uh, another study uh, shows that of mutual symbiotic relationships. They're just amazing. These are seen in nature when two different species have an ecological relationship with one another in which both of them benefit from the other. Probably most well-known is Nemo and the anemone. Right? We're all familiar with that. Most creatures can't go and mess with the anemone because it'll hurt them. But the clownfish can go in there and it keeps the clownfish safe from predators and the clownfish benefits the anemone by keeping it free of parasites and providing some nutrients. It's really cool. Another example is the pistol fish and the goby fish. I read an article about this. The pistol fish, it says this, I'm quoting, Pistol shrimp, I'm sorry, pistol shrimp are burrowers digging holes in sandy seafloor that will, they will maintain and sometimes share with a goby. Outside the burrow, the pairs stay close together, often with the shrimp maintaining physical contact by resting its antennae on the fish. 
When the goby spots a potential predator, it uses chemical cues and bolts for cover in the shared burrow. The shrimp relies on these tactile and chemical cues to know when it needs to hide too. When the goby is active, it, sing- it signals the shrimp that it's relatively safe to be outside the burrows. It's amazing. There's many other examples of these mutual symbiotic relationships as well. You can read about them. But this beneficial relationship with one another to some degree paints a helpful picture of sanctification in the life of a believer. And there's often confusion when it comes to sanctification. Many believe that the Lord has saved you and now it is entirely your responsibility to sanctify yourself. You need to do the hard work of putting off sin, of putting on righteousness, and when you struggle, you need to pull it together and get it right. God has saved you, he's broken the chains, and now you need to do the work of living it out. That's what some would say. Then there's the other end of the spectrum, the far other end that says you just need to trust the Lord to do all of the work of sanctification in your life. He is going to do it, and you have no part in it. You just need to let go and let God. Let him do the work. He saved you, and now he's going to sanctify you. Don't focus on what you're doing. Don't worry about how you're living. Instead, just trust God to do all of it. And if you aren't being sanctified, it's ultimately not your fault because it's God's work. Now, unfortunately, neither of these accurately portray a biblical understanding of sanctification. And as we focus our attention on discipleship this year, it's important for us to avoid these two extremes in our counsel to one another. Instead, we need to have a biblically balanced understanding of sanctification in order to encourage and challenge one another accurately. Our relationship with God when it comes to sanctification is not just symbiotic. We benefit from God's work in us. We bring glory to God. It's not just symbiotic, but it's synergistic. That means it is a work between both God and the believer together. It comes from the Greek word ergos, which means to work, and the prefix that means together. It is a work together. That's exactly what we see in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. If you've not already turned there in your Bibles, please do so now. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul, speaking to the Philippians, says this. He says, so my beloved brethren, or so my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not, only, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We have to begin by noticing that the passage starts with, so then, which also could be translated, therefore, which is going to point back to the previous verses in chapter two. Paul is coming to a conclusion here based on information that he has already covered. So if we're gonna understand these two verses and the implications that they have for our own sanctification, it would do us well to understand this context as well. Verses one through four, Paul calls for unity among the believers, both unity and humility. 
that the body of Christ must be united together and humbly consider others. And then look at verses five through 11. Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also, that's another therefore statement, therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These verses demonstrate the life, the ministry, and the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross for our benefit and for his ultimate glory. Jesus shed his blood to bring about our salvation. Christ's perfect life was executed in order to kill sin within us. And this has tremendous ramifications and implications for our sanctification. That's why Paul begins verse 12 with therefore, based on what I just said, based on Christ's humility. His humility to the point of torture and death on the cross for your sake and the fact that all will one day bow the knee before him, my beloved, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Bow your knee to him now in your life. James Montgomery Boyce puts it this way. He says, Jesus Christ humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death of the cross. Therefore, God also exalted him. Jesus showed the course of humility and obedience. Therefore, the Christian is to work out his or her salvation. The words show that doctrine always leads to practical Christianity. I love that. Doctrine always leads to practical Christianity. It's not just head knowledge. Understanding the doctrines of the gospel for the believer, the truths of scripture, is always going to lead to practical living for the Christian. There are practical outworkings of truth in the life of all of us. So if you hear a sermon filled with rich theology and you aren't spoon-fed application and you walk away unchanged, Beloved, it's because you've not done the work of meditating on those truths and thinking on that practical application for your own life. Because doctrine always leads to practical Christianity. John Piper explains there is an effective connection between justification by Christ's blood and sanctification by that same blood. You can't divorce doctrine and practical Christian living. We are in Christ, and who we are in Christ determines how we live in Christ. This is why when Paul calls the Philippians to be unified and humble toward one another, he immediately points to Christ as the example of that. Now this, inevitably, would call into the minds of his readers how in the world this is supposed to happen. How am I supposed to live like Christ, Paul? How could I possibly demonstrate that kind of selfless humility? How can I live in unity 
with people who sometimes drive me absolutely crazy. Anybody else feel that way sometimes? The real question is, what is the source of sanctification? What's the source? And Paul anticipates these questions and answers them before they're even asked in verses 12 and 13, which we read a moment ago. So what we're going to see in these two verses are the two sides of the synergistic relationship of sanctification. The two sides of the synergistic relationship of sanctification. So if you're taking notes, those are, those are the two hooks we're going to hang our thoughts on. The two sides of the synergistic relationship of sanctification. First is your command to obedience. Your command to obedience. Look at verse 12. Paul says, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The first thing to notice here is Paul doesn't just immediately exhort them to obedience. He doesn't just jump in and hit them with the command. Instead, he, he takes a moment to encourage them and commend them on a job well done in the past. He calls them my beloved. This is a, a term of endearment. Paul is very close with the Philippians. He has a great love for the Philippians. This word is a form of the word agape. It's though he is saying, my, my dearly loved ones. All throughout the letter, Paul uses these endearing terms of the Philippians to show his, his love, his affection for them. He, he cared for them greatly. He continues by commending them for their diligence and persistence in obedience. While he was with them, they obeyed always, he said. When he was present, he, he recognized their great obedience to the Lord. They were, they were doing everything that they could to live in earnest obedience, and he wanted to compel them in their Christian living moving forward. So he commends them to, to continue. You've done this well so far, he says. He's like a, a football coach at halftime commending his team for a, a job well done in the first half. It's no time to begin slacking off. No time to begin playing half-heartedly. The team has to hit the field through the second half with the same vigor, the same tenacity as they did in the first half of the game if they're going to win. They can't go out and take it easy. So Paul encourages the Philippians with their obedience. And you can understand this. When someone comes to you and encourages you that you're doing a, a good job at something, Hey, you're, you're doing really great at that. Doesn't that encourage you? You want to, do, you want to continue to do that well. You, you want to continue to do it and do it better. Right? That encouragement, it, it lifts you up. It builds you up. Some practical application here, too, for discipleship. How do we apply this in those relationships that we have with others? You think about those relationships that you have. Are there times where you could be more encouraging to those that you interact with? Times where, where you could tell them, commend them for something that they, they're doing really well instead of always just challenging them and pointing out their sin and condemning them and why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? You could take a second, even now, write down the names of a couple people in your life. It's like, you know what? I could, I could really commend this person for what they've been doing. I could, you know what? I could commend them to you. 
Think about how this could be an ongoing part of your relationships and especially any discipleship relationships that you're in. You go to them before you, you go to anyone with, with a, a challenge or a confrontation. You go to them and commend them. And you're doing a really great job at this. And I want to encourage you to continue on. It's far too easy, I think, to see the sin in people's lives rather than how they're thriving. It's easy to see where they're falling short rather than where they're excelling forward. So we're quick to point that out. Ooh, stop that. Nope, don't do that. Stop this. Take some time to encourage the people in your life. That's what we learned from Paul's example here. And afterwards, he continues to bring some exhortation to them. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He says, you have obeyed, but now even more, even now that I'm not there, continue on much more. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out, carry it out. Continue the the task of your salvation. This phrase has perplexed many believers for centuries. Do we somehow play a role in, in keeping our salvation that has been granted to us by Christ. He gives it to us and now we've gotta, we, gotta, we have to keep it, we have to maintain it. Is that what he's saying here? I think biblically we know that that's not the case. Salvation isn't dependent on us. Our salvation is secure in Christ from the time that he saves us to the time that we are in heaven. See this in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Titus 3, 5, many other places as well. John 10, 29 Christ explains that his sheep are his and they're held and no one can snatch them out of his hand. So obviously Paul isn't saying that we somehow need to be the ones to to keep ourselves saved. James Montgomery Boyce explains how to understand what Paul is saying here. He says, it is the clear meaning of the sentence itself. The verse does not say work for your salvation or work toward your salvation or work at your salvation. It says work out your salvation. We're to work it out. We've been saved and so now that salvation is to have have ramifications. It is to have fruit in our lives. We're to work out that salvation. So what is this work? What is the work we are to do as believers? This is to accomplish something, to prepare something. It carries the idea of being disciplined for the purpose of achieving a goal. The objective is is trying to accomplish two things. First, disciplined, disciplined obedience. And second is the diligent hard work of meditating and focusing on the truth of God's word. And those, I think, hopefully you'll see go hand in hand. What does this disciplined work of obedience look like? 1 Timothy 4, 7, Paul describes it. He says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Control yourself. It is living a disciplined life in pursuit of godliness. And that, that flows from a love for Christ, a desire to obey him out of his, because of his love for you. It's the the natural result of him pouring out his love for you is it's echoed back to him in love. So 1 John 4.19 says, we love because what? Because he first loved us. 
couldn't do it apart from his love. It's the only way that we can love him in return and love others in return is because Christ has poured out his love for us. And so after coming to salvation and recognizing this love of Christ, you respond back in love for him. When you fall in love with Christ, your, your priorities change, your, your will changes, your desires change. What you want in life changes. You'll want to obey Christ more and more because he has so loved you and because you believe that he knows what's best. It's a change of priorities in your life. Christ's love changes who you are, what you are about, so that your desires become an obedient life instead of a rebellious life, an obedient life rather than a selfish life. And living a disciplined life, it does not mean living a legalistic life. It is not trying to earn God's grace because you already have all of the grace you could possibly have in Christ. The legalistic life is the one that does what is right because it feels like if you, if you don't, I, I, I've somehow lost some, some grace from God. I've lost some favor with God. You have no favor based on your works. Your favor with God is based on Christ's works, his finished work. You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Dr. R. Kent Hughes talks about the difference between discipline and legalism in this way. He says the difference is one of motivation. Legalism is self-centered. Discipline is God-centered. The legalistic heart says, I will do this thing to gain merit with God. So God will look on me and say, yes, you wonderful, wonderful child, you. You are doing so well. The disciplined heart says, I will do this thing because I love God and I want to please him. There's an infinite difference between the motivation of legalism and discipline. Sadly, when we carry out good works in this way for some kind of merit from God, some kind of additional grace that we perceive we're going to get from God, they are merely what one author calls grace boosters. We feel that there are deeds we can do that are gonna boost our favor with God. We're gonna level up. God's gonna look at us more highly than he maybe looks at other people. You see how that kind of talk is so self-focused. The author, calling these grace boosters, compares them to the pillars of uh, the town hall of Windsor that Christopher Wren added in, in England in 1689. He says this, he says, the city fathers wanted a beautiful new town hall with a large meeting room above an open space for a farmer's market below. They commissioned Wren, the architect of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, to design it. Wren used a new construction method to support the walls, uh, to support the meeting room above the open air market on the hall's first floor. When the city fathers viewed the building, they were alarmed. The farmer's market below the meeting room was without pillars except around the periphery. In the middle, there were no pillars to support the ceiling, which was the floor of their meeting room above. They asked Wren to add four pillars in the middle of the open air market space to keep them from falling down into the first floor below when they met their new when they met in their new meeting room. Wren refused. 
pointing out how beautiful the open space was without the pillars in the middle, but the city fathers insisted. So, finally, a bitter wren added the pillars. Years later, the city market needed repairs. The ceiling had to be repaired. The workmen built their scaffolds around the pillars, climbed up to repair the ceiling, and found something shocking. The four pillars that Wren added didn't touch the ceiling. (laughs) Wren's pillars were deceptive. They didn't support anything at all. Our good works meant to sustain or even increase God's favor are like Wren's deceptive pillars. They're beautiful in our own eyes, maybe in the eyes of others, but they give a a false sense of security and contribute nothing to the grace that God has given us in Christ. Because of the work of Christ, our relationship is fully restored with God Sanctification is not a means of earning more grace. It is a means of living out that grace. It's a means of becoming more like him who granted us that grace. uh, Disciplined obedience is the, the walk of the Christian life. And it isn't just obedience for obedience's sake. It's like the Pharisees They carried out the law with tremendous obedience, but they had no real relationship with God. They mastered the motions, but lacked any love. So evaluate your heart and your life this morning, Christian. Why is it that you do what you do? Is it out of obligation? Is it an attempt to earn favor in the sight of God? Maybe favor in the sight of man. If given the opportunity to to sin without anyone knowing, would you go for it? Or would you live in obedience to the Lord because you love him? Are you neglecting obedience in various areas of your life because you're, you're living an undisciplined life? Is it time to repent, to turn, from those known sins in your life and turn to loving obedience? Evaluate your own heart and life this morning, beloved. Where are those hidden sins, those grace boosters, those legalistic attempts? First, we see our command to obedience out of a genuine love for Christ The second side of that synergistic relationship of sanctification is God's gracious provision. God's gracious provision. Look at verse 13. Paul says, you're to live that life of disciplined obedience for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul uses a play on words here. You're to work out your salvation because God has worked it in. You work it out because God worked it in. It's interesting to to note that as we look at these two verses, we have the same English word in verses 12 and 13 for work. Um, They are different words in the Greek text in verses 12 and 13. In verse 12, you have the the word katergazestai. It is working with the purpose of accomplishing a task. I said that earlier. It is disciplined work to achieve something, 
right? And in this case, it is righteous living. Personal holiness is the goal of that disciplined obedience. But in verse 13, there's a different word to the Greek word energeo. Energeo, it means to cause to function, to affect, to perform, to bring about, to act, to be active, to energize. You can see how as years passed, it's come to morph into the energeo, energy is where we get that word. You could translate it, it provides the ability and means, the, the energy. So it is God who provides the means, the ability to carry out that working out of our salvation. One commentator puts it this way. He says, I want to suggest that these two verses together express the Christian life, our relationship with God as unconditional good news. We are not puppets being micromanaged by God. We are responsible people in a personal relationship with a personal God. But on the other hand, we are weak. And God gives us everything we need to maintain a strong, healthy relationship with him. See that weakness even in in Romans chapter seven when Paul is battling with his flesh back and forth. I do what I don't wanna do. The things I I wanna do are the things that I do and I don't do those things and I do the things that I hate. He's battling, he's, who's gonna set me free? It is Christ, thanks be to Jesus who sets me free from the body of this death. We are workers and God is the one who provides the ability. Remember, before even getting here, Paul directs attention to Christ's work first in the beginning of chapter two and then calls us to that obedience. This is how we are going to accomplish it. How? Through the Lord. For it is God. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God. That same God that highly exalted Christ bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that everyone will bow to him. It is that all-powerful, Christ-exalting Lord who now works in you, providing the energy and ability to live a life of obedience. Through Christ's love, through the Holy Spirit, that ability through Christ, you are granted to obey, to work out your salvation. You are commanded to obey, yet incapable of obedience apart from Christ. So God has worked powerfully in you now to bring you to himself in salvation and is now at work in you through the power of the Holy Spirit to bring about sanctification. Commentator Richard Mellick explains God's work in them provided both the motivation and the ability to do his good pleasure. Or as MacArthur says, God energizes his children to obey and serve him. His power enables their sanctification. We are called to do it and God empowers us to be able to. This is the synergistic work of sanctification. We're called to obedience, yet we are incapable of it. You are saved by grace through faith And you continue on in sanctification to be perfected by grace through faith. That's what Paul tells the the Galatians. 
when they attempt to be sanctified apart from the work of God in them. Galatians 3.3, 3, he says, are you so foolish? He doesn't always encourage, okay? Some, you know, you do when you can, you know? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected in the flesh? You've been saved by grace and now you're gonna continue to try to do things on your own? That's foolishness. Paul even started the book of Philippians with the understanding that God is at work in sanctification. Philippians 1.6, he says, I'm confident of this very thing. He who began a work in you, the work of salvation, he's drawn you to himself, is going to perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's going to continue to work in you. God started the work and God continues the work. The only difference is that between salvation and sanctification is you, you had absolutely nothing to do with your salvation. Nothing. Amen. That was God's work in choosing you, in regenerating you, in saving you. It was unearned, unmerited grace. And it's fantastic. And now you are called to a diligent, disciplined life of obedience and pursuing transformation into Christ-likeness in which you are dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Sanctification is not just a, a let go and let God. You can't neglect both sides of this synergistic relationship. Scripture is filled with passages about the diligent effort that we have to pour into our sanctification. This is not a sit back and God change me. Just waiting for something to happen. Zap of lightning. Don't pray for that. You might get it. <laughs> First Corinthians 9 describes, describes the Christian life, the sanctification, like a race we must run, like a, a boxing match we must win. Ephesians 6 describes it like a war that we are in that we must be prepared for. Jesus describes sanctification as radical amputation. Your right eye causes you to stumble, you pluck it out and you throw it from you. Your right hand causes you to sin, you cut it off and you throw it. These powerful, serious metaphors paint the seriousness, the rigors that we must take in mortifying sin in our life. It's not a sit back and do nothing and hope for the best. It is diligent effort that we are to put into our own personal holiness. But beloved, we're so lazy. We're so complacent. We get to a place where things are comfortable. It's like, well, Jesus, it's, it's just so much easier to give in to the lust of the flesh. It's far simpler to just go with the flow of the culture. It's not as hard just to be content with where I am right now spiritually. It's like, I'm not that bad, right, Jesus? It's like, everything's okay. But fighting, boxing, running, cutting out, those all sound like hard things to do. And they are. They absolutely are. But praise be to God who energizes us to help us with the task. He equips us and gives us the power to do it. So how is it that this synergistic relationship works? How is it that we work and God works? You're like, okay, Tim, I got it. We work, God works. But that's confusing. Our work in verse 12 of working out our salvation 
with fear and trembling is primarily to work hard at believing and meditating on the truths of Scripture that God has worked in us. God's word is the catalyst that brings about the explosion of growth in your life. As you spend time in God's word, meditating on God's word, trusting and believing it more and more, the Holy Spirit uses his word to bring conviction into your life. Your sin is exposed through the pages of scripture by the Holy Spirit convicting you and you are drawn to God in repentance. You go to him and you cry out for forgiveness. You cry out that the Lord would change you and remove that sin from your life and you work earnestly to remove it. And that forgiveness is granted Willingly and fully, when you come to God in a repentant heart, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. As we believe the truths of scripture, we then live them out, trusting in God's word, trusting in God's will for what is best for our life, and this brings about personal holiness, also known as sanctification. And then this cycle continues. You spend more time in God's word and new truths are revealed to you that you've never seen before, which bring conviction by the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, which brings repentance, which brings more personal holiness. And this cycle continues in your lives over and over and over. It is called progressive sanctification. Because as your life continues and you go through this process over and over again, you're slowly going to become more and more and more like that one who loves you and has poured out his life and love for you. This is why it is the utmost importance as believers that we spend time in God's word And not only spend time in it, but to meditate on it, to ponder it, to think on it. You recognize this synergistic relationship of of God and us, but the source of sanctification is the scriptures that the Spirit uses in us. That is, we pour our hearts and lives over the the scriptures. The Spirit uses the scripture to transform us. And I'm not just making this up. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God and it is profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That sounds like sanctification. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every, what? Good work. That's what the scriptures do in you. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's God's word that brings that conviction. It pierces our heart, and it hurts sometimes. Like, man, I don't like seeing this sin in me. It's ugly. Ephesians 6, 
the full armor of God. We put it on to face the attacks of the evil one. What is the armor of God? Is it stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with what? What are you taking into battle? You're taking truth. Having put on the the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all these, taking up the shield of faith. That's believing. You have faith in the truths that God has revealed. You have faith in God's word that you take into battle. Why? Because they extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The helmet of salvation the sword of the spirit, what, what is that? What are you doing battle with? You're doing battle with the word of God against sin and temptation in your life. If you're going to go into battle, you must equip yourself with God's word. And beloved, we wonder sometimes why we fall. What are you taking into battle? How about Psalm 1? What's the key? To the the blessed man, the happy and spiritually prosperous life, it is delighting and meditating on God's word day and night. His leaf does not wither. He's fruitful abundantly. Whatever he does, he prospers. 2 Peter 1.3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory. The true knowledge of him. Where do we find that? We find that in God's word as well. Look at Romans 8, the focus on the mind here. For those who are according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. For those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. Hear God's word there. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Beloved, if you're looking at your life and you find yourself in a spiritual drought, might I suggest to you that you evaluate the time that you spend with God in his word or maybe lack thereof. How is your mind, day by day, moment by moment, going to be set on the things of the Spirit if the things of the Spirit are not in your mind? It's time for us to wake up, to be invigorated by God's Word, to to see the seriousness the heinousness of our sin. So easy for us to be comfortable with it because we don't think it's that big of a deal. I mean, Christ is going to forgive me anyway, right? Just start recognizing it is such a big deal that Christ was crucified for it. His blood was shed for it. His body was beaten for it and his life extinguished for it. It's no small deal. Yet how easily and nonchalantly we give in to temptation, often without a moment's hesitation. It's so easy. Before I even got here this morning, I was irritated with my kids and I snapped at my wife. 
so easy to just give in as though it's no big deal. Oh, that we would recognize the gravity of our offenses against our infinitely holy, loving God and drink deeply of his word, longing, longing every day to be even but the, the slightest more like Jesus. Your time in God's word, it is, it is not homework. It's not a chore. It's not an assignment to complete. It's not a, another box to check off in your day. Your time in God's word is time with God himself, and it is the catalyst for your personal holiness. So, beloved, don't neglect it. Do you ever think, man, I just want to be more like Jesus? you ever think that? That should drive you to his word. As you focus your attention on God's word, let that fill your discipleship relationships as well. Those relationships should be centered around truth. It's fine to talk about the weather. It's been miserable. We all know it. It's true. Get a glimmer of hope and you're like, yay. Oh, there it goes. It's fine to talk about vacation. We're all looking forward to the sun coming out so that we can carry out some of those plans. It's fine to talk about sports, but let those conversations never be the end of your discipleship relationships. May they be filled with truth, with substance. What is the point of discipleship if not growth in Christ-likeness? So why engage in discipleship apart from God's word if sanctification is the goal? Paul says, so then, my beloved brethren, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God has orchestrated this amazing redemptive plan in his great and awesome love for you before the foundation of time He wove together this design to save you from the the punishment you deserve in hell. And that plan was to send his son to earth to pay your debt, to take your sin, to lift your burden, to break your chains, to lift you up and cause you to be sanctified through the life-giving water of his word. Beautiful. the example of John Bunyan. Charles Spurgeon looked to him as an encouragement for his congregation. Spurgeon said this, says, I would quote John Bunyan as an instance of what I mean. Read anything of his and you will see that it is almost like reading the Bible itself. He had read it till his very soul was saturated with scripture and though his writings are charmingly full of poetry, yet he cannot give us his pilgrim's progress, the sweetest of all prose poems without continually making us feel and say why this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere, his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak.
speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the word of God. I commend his example to you, beloved. It's a great example. May that be true of us. May we also be so infused with scripture that we're seeking constantly to be conformed more and more into Christ's image. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for your word. Thank you for the life that you have given us through your truth. Thank you, God, that you continue. You have begun that good work in us and you continue to perfect us as we pour our heart and life into your word. You use your, your spirit, convicts us and changes us. God, may we be ever attentive to your word. Help us to to cling to it, to love it, to cherish it, to spend so much time in it, pouring over those words that bring life. Thank you, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.